From the Oxano Podcast Network, welcome to My Ministry Breakthrough, hosted by me, Brian Rose. This podcast is all about pastors sharing unfiltered stories of moments large and small, of times when the fog of ministry chaos clears and breakthrough clarity happens. What it means for most pastors is if I handed them $50 million today, they would say, great, I never have to talk about money again. Hmm. And I would say, wrong. Hmm. You're not only talking about money because you need it to run your church. You're talking about it because as my pastor, I need your help in dealing with my life and dealing with where my anxiety comes from. Money, it's the one topic, okay, maybe other than sex, that most pastors dread preaching about. Whether it's because we've been told for years that talking about money runs people off or that talking about money tunes people out and offends them. Maybe it's because we've seen fundraising and money be abused by other church leaders, preying on their congregation, naming it and claiming it, driving their white Mercedes on a widow's might. We've also seen money misrepresented as a modern sign of God's blessing or favor. I think many pastors even wonder if they have permission to speak to their people about their money. Saying that Jesus talked about money more than love doesn't really change the way anyone feels in talking about money themselves. But what if money was our greatest discipleship tool? What if some of the biggest spiritual strongholds in your church could be broken? What if the number one cause of divorce could be eradicated? What if you had the keys to exponential growth in everyday living by faith in Christ? What if you could stop preaching about money because you needed to, or it was time to, and start teaching about the freedom found in generosity because you wanted to? My guest today is my good friend, Greg Gibbs. Greg is a fellow lead navigator with Oxano, and he leads our resourcing team. These are the guys that walk alongside church leaders and help them to build a prevailing culture of generosity in their churches. They also help churches steward specific fundraising seasons through capital campaigns. Here's the reality. Every growing church at some point will need to fund a visionary project beyond their week-to-week budget through a capital campaign. You'll love Greg's pastor-to-pastor heart when it comes to preaching and talking about money. Greg was a senior pastor for years with the exact same questions and fears about this topic that many of you have. Greg's first book, The Capital Campaign Playbook, is everything you need to know about leading a successful capital campaign. He is unashamedly giving away the consulting playbook on campaigns because Greg believes in the power of leveraging money and approaches generosity as a tool to truly disciple your people. Greg and I start the conversation talking about a couple of other passions of his, coffee roasting and opening up his home, another form of generosity. Pastor, you need to hear this perspective on leading your congregation toward greater generosity and ultimately greater depth in their walk with Christ. So lean in and listen up to Greg Gibbs, Oxano's resourcing team leader from Detroit, Michigan. Greg, thanks for sitting in. It's great to uh, get you in on an episode here, especially in this exciting season in your life. Uh, with a book coming out and everything that's going on, I I got I got to kind of come right up front before we get started. Let everybody know you and I work together as a part of the Oxano team, um, and in some ways, as I sit here and, and across from this microphone from you, 
and look at you. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit like Timothy looking at Paul of just kind of this, this father figure, this mentor, this person who has poured into me. Um, and it's not been in my growth in my walk with Christ, but it's been in growth in my walk with coffee. So yes, yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I'm sure that's what I'm good I for. Mean, the Jesus stuff has been there too. I mean, let's, let's not, let's not go too far. Uh, yeah. So I, is this like what you're supposed to do when you start off a podcast is to characterize your guest as older than you and, you know, like make, make an age joke. Wiser and older in the ways of coffee. No, I, I can clearly remember sitting on the back porch. I see you're in your office right now. I remember sitting on your back porch, uh, probably last August, uh, at the end of the summer and roasting coffee and just enjoying, uh, the gifts of God and talking about life. And that's what I appreciate with you, Greg. And I know that's what you bring to, to your, uh, to your teams. Tell us a little bit about where you are today and what's going on. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast. This is fun. I'm so proud of you that you're doing this and you've had some great guests so far and that kind of all ends today, but, um, you know, I'm allowed, I think I'm allowed one dud every once in a while. (laughs) Well, you got it. Um, yeah, so it had to be last August because I live in Michigan, which means coffee roasting season is not year-round. Yeah. On the back deck here at the house in Rochester Hills, Michigan, we, we buy beans from um, downtown Detroit at the Eastern Market and, and invite friends over to, to roast beans. But yeah, I'm, wow. here, I'm here at home. Uh, but of course, if I'm not here at home, I'm on the road uh, as a teammate of yours working with churches all over the country. So pretty fun. I want to, I don't want to run over something here because I think there's something as people get to know you and, and coffee kind of sounds like it's a fun thing. It kind of sounds like, Oh, okay. If I'm describing myself, those things, but I know you, you are very intentional there about buying beans, roasting and enjoying time with people. That's not just a, a hobby. There's something deeper to that, isn't there? Well, yeah, I'm not sure it started that way, but I discovered along the way that it scratches a couple of itches. And one of them is um, that there is this, you know, super close to the coffee roasting thing that feels kind of coffee nerd that I like. But it, it, I don't think I've ever done it where I didn't invite somebody to do it with me. Now, I've done it alone, but most of the time it's a guy like you where you're like, hey, do you roast coffee? Is that really true? And I say, yeah, if you want to come over and do it, let's do it together. Because then there's conversation and then there's sharing because, you know, you take the coffee with you that you roasted. Anyway, it's just one more thing where Andrea and I can have people at the house for, you know, a quirky little thing, but it ends up being, you know, a way to build friendships. Why is that important to you to have people at your house? Because I mean, we could go out and drink coffee together. We can go do some other things. What's, what is it about the back porch or the living room or the counter where we sat and talked? What is it about that for you and Andrea? I'm not sure it was intentional, but over the years, we stumbled into the idea that opening up your home and letting people feel like they can have access to you and anything that you own or have, um, for us, is one of our primary spiritual commitments. Again, I'm not sure we set out to do it that way, but all of a sudden, we had, you know, our older kids. We have four children, and the older ones started bringing kids around here, and uh, we fell in love with the idea that people can sniff out the second they walk through your door, whether or not it's going to be a place of love and safety and hospitality or, or whether there's kind of a rules boundaries thing that's going to cause them to feel unwelcome. And so uh, when it started happening organically, we were like, uh, Lord, if you could let that keep happening, we're cool with that because we love people and we love the idea that would, they would walk away from here saying, you know what, those people, they're, they're a little weird, but that was fun. What's one thing you guys have had to do 
uh, as a discipline or maybe just as a, a practice to ensure that that stays in place. Because I think, you know, kids have different personalities. They have different friends. Is there anything you know you guys have done like highly intentionally to make this home a place where their friends feel welcome? Yeah, these are great questions, Brian, because honestly, most of it has been not that proactive or intentional. But I think quickly what comes to mind is um, the kids are kind of little ambassadors for this idea, meaning any one of our four kids knows that if they're in any situation with any other human being, that they're always given full carte blanche, uh, you know, ability to invite people to anything. So we literally had a, a Spanish teacher from the local high school at Christmas dinner with us because my daughter Allie knew that when she heard that the Spanish teacher was going to be alone, she was like, oh, just come to my house for Christmas dinner. And, and, and she knew that she didn't have to ask us for permission to do that. So she had, you know, the full sort of blank check on that. And then the other thing too is my wife is really what, who drives this, but she will often coach people. Don't think that you have to have some fancy spread or some, you know, you got to lay out the linens and the silver. Uh, as a matter of fact, it almost goes against the whole idea of organic and family as you know, cause the opposite is just saying, Hey, I don't know what's in the fridge, but we're going to pull it out and everybody's going to eat it. And when it's gone, it's gone, but you know, have whatever you want. There's no, no cupboard that's off limits. And, um, so I think those are two things at least that kind of kept the culture. I, I this, I, I know this could seem completely off topic for, you know, even, even as you and I talked about this podcast, but there's something fascinating about that because I think, in most cases, that's unfamiliar territory for many of our modern U.S. American homes today. And I think even in the church, sometimes we run after hospitality at the congregational organizational level and fail to realize that the true spirit of hospitality there begins by church members who are welcoming and bringing people into their homes. And so, you know, I know that's a part of your work and, and you know, there's so like 18 more questions. Uh, maybe we'll have to save them for a different podcast. Um, Dude, I, but I'm curious. You know, I, I think you're onto something. And I do, I do think we should do like a second podcast because here, here's, you know, if I can totally veer off topic, I think this is critically important because as the church in America, um, particularly from the basis of the media perspective on the church or the criticism of the institution, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that criticism is unfair, but at the same time, we're at a point in, in our lives as believers in Jesus that I'm not sure bringing people to the church is always the best right first move to introduce them to the love of Jesus. So this whole home hospitality thing is kind of inarguable because when you invite someone to your home, that's a very gracious, generous way of living and an invitation that's hard to refuse. And you're not inviting people to a religion or to ascribe to some you know, club or membership agreement or whatever. You're just saying, Hey, I got stuff in the fridge and you're my friend. And so if you want to see kind of the way the Gibbs family lives, there's always an open door. And I, I think people, I think people like that. I think people like to host. Many do. Not everybody does. I think people like to visit. I just think that may be a little bit of the secret sauce to the future of Jesus people in America is, um, you know, gospel is going to be a tough thing to deliver the more our culture gets the way it gets. And I don't think it's as hard to deliver when it's life on life and kind of kitchen to kitchen. Give us a quick two or three minute snapshot of a little bit of your, your history and kind of where you are today, both in the church world and in the strategic outsider world through Oxano. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it all starts for me with, um, and I'll kind of just dance through some highlights because this could be a, you know, a six hour podcast, which no one wants to listen to. But, um, you know, I grew up in a home of an IBM executive who loved the Lord and mom and dad served the church and served people. And really the model for me in opening my home and opening up my stuff was my parents. Uh, Everybody at the church, small church, just outside of Philadelphia, everybody at the church knew that the Gibbs garage door was always open and never locked. And my parents would literally say to people, whether we're there or not, if you need to use the bathroom or if you're hungry or whatever, just slide open the garage door because it's always open. So I grew up in that kind of a home, a home that uh, well, but I, I don't imagine Philadelphia and <laughs> unlocked doors for some reason. Well, you know, maybe it was unique and, and we were in the suburbs and I don't mean to be disparaging to the city, but we lived in a town where that could work. And, and, uh, and the thirties and forties were a different time. Too. <laughs> That's right. I am your older peer. And so, <laughs> um, but yeah, mom and dad, I mean, you know, like people, you know, this is back when my dad modeled for me that when missionaries came off the field, you know, people would give them like you know, secondhand clothing and whatever. And my dad would take the missionary out to the same clothing store and Mm -hmm. buy him the same suit that my dad would wear to IBM to work. And so, um, what was the meaning of that as a young kid for you, as you, as you saw that happen, can you remember processing that? Uh, I don't know whether I would have processed it with the sophistication that I may look at it today, but I remember thinking, that's pretty cool because something tells me, I don't know much, but I think that's unique. I think my dad is, I don't think my dad has to do that. I think he's doing it because of something else that's driving him internally. And I knew it was a spiritual thing. And, you know, again, as a kid, I was just, I was proud of my dad. I didn't know why my mom and dad functioned that way. Cause I didn't know anything different. So, um, so I, I would have to say in my little sort of dance through time that I can't not talk about my parents, my family. Um, and again, I think Andrea, my wife, her parents were similar. So we have the great gift of the heritage of two families from which mm-hmm. we come that both in some form or fashion get the Jesus thing and get the generosity thing. So there's that. I got into ministry um, after college and pastored for a number of years. And so I'll fast forward to when I was the senior pastor of a uh, church plant in Michigan and we needed to build a facility. And the way the story goes, I thought, well, we need help raising money because I don't really know how to do this. I'd never been part of a capital campaign. I didn't, I didn't know how to spell capital campaign at that point in my career. Yeah. A or O always gets me. <laughs> and, uh, but here, here's the thing, Brian, I, I, here was my posture. I think it was an arrogance. It was an insecurity, whatever it was. I was like, okay, let's bring this consultant guy in and have him do the money raising sort of business stuff and then get him out of here. So I can do the real work of the church, the real Jesus stuff, you know, that's as it. if, as if the fundraising wasn't, intrinsic in the, in the heart of Jesus and the heart of the church, but it's something is kind of a necessary evil. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly my posture. Like taking out the trash or, or paying the water bill. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I I think there's a lot of churches and pastors that can relate to this. You know, anytime it has to do with money, it's, it's a little bit like that. You know, it's like taking your vitamins, you know, I don't really want to preach about money, but you know, every good pastor should. So there's this definite sense of, it's a sidebar, it's a sidecar, it's not the main thing, you know, whatever. Anyway, the, the, the thing for me was, um, to my delight and surprise, our congregation grew spiritually in ways that I could have never expected. I probably didn't have the skill set to catalyze myself as a pastor, a young guy was 30, you know. Um, 
whatever. All, all I knew was things went crazy for us spiritually and financially. And Andrea and I, we grew as a couple, you know, uh, we made a commitment that was kind of a stretch for us right at a time when, you know, I wasn't making much money and we were adopting a child from China. And, you know, it was kind of ridiculous in a way, that sort of yeah. irrational faith thing. And I had really, I never experienced that. I experienced solid faith. Yeah, like good faith. And my, you know, as I said about my parents and my background, whatever, I mean, it was good. But I was never really out on the edge in a manner that a capital campaign causes you to go out on the edge a little bit. And I think that is good for the soul. And so I ended Why? up... Why? Uh, I don't think people operate in... I think, I, I think people operate in fear. I think most of us operate in fear. And so when you ask... What do you mean? What do you mean? We operate in fear. Uh, fear, fear about the future. Fear about, you know, if I was truly going to be generous, I would want to have hedged all my bets so that I'm not going to be left with nothing if I give yeah. money away. And yeah. so very, you know, people, it's a muscle, it's a spiritual muscle that has to be, mm. you know, warmed up and exercised and used. You don't just automatically understand how to live in faith versus letting your fears kind of get the best of you. So all of a sudden our whole congregation has this opportunity to say, what if I actually went out a little bit here on a limb and said, I don't exactly know how this is all going to work, but I'm going to live in an extraordinarily generous way, believing that God will take care of that, not being ridiculous, but definitely being risky. And all of a sudden things start to happen in your soul where you're like, oh yeah, why do I not always believe the mm -hmm. theology that says God is the great provider, that God is looking for ways to see his kingdom built and his children blessed. And, and all these things that kind of come in a very real way, they become way less theoretical and way less sort of pulpit talk and very much, you know, in the day-to-day -day, uh, living out of, of our faith. And so we all experience that. So I fell in love with it. I just thought, oh my gosh, this is, and then of course, once you really study scripture and understand Jesus is totally onto something here because he's talking about it all, all Jesus, the time. Jesus, hey, can I quote that? Jesus is onto something here. Jesus is onto something. <laughs> I always say, you know, my, I, have a, I have a couple of uh, writing projects right now, and not the next one, but the one after that is one that I have, you know, basically the focus of it is uh, the fact that Jesus was talking about it all the time, and I'm thinking about it all the time. So he and I have something in common here is that we're both very interested in the topic of money and possessions and generosity. Me more because I can tend to live in fear and not always in faith, and it kind of captures my attention and my heart. And Jesus, because he knew that it would capture my attention and my heart. And he's, he doesn't need my money, but he does want my heart. And so that's why he was always sort of gently poking at someone's heart that he met in the first century and saying, hey, why don't you give away all your money? Well, he, he doesn't really need the rich guy to give away all his money. He needed to, to find out if the rich guy was truly trusting in his money mm. or was willing to turn and trust in Jesus himself. So once I started to experience this and then study it more and, and discover the, <laughs> that Jesus was onto something, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is one of the main catalysts for explosive spiritual growth. And so my thesis went from this is a necessary evil to this is a category of discipleship that precipitates explosive growth. Mm. Well, that's a big shift. Yeah. And in that big shift, I was also recruited by the guy who was the vice president of the company that did our capital campaign. 
And it was at a time in my life where I was burnt out and needed to kind of step away from ministry. And so it ended up becoming God's, you know, kind of provision for our family that I started doing capital campaigns and learned from some of the best. One of the companies that's still in business, a bunch of great guys that taught me. And so I was able to apply my personal experience, my pastoral experience, and my new love for this whole idea of the dynamic discipleship explosion of capital campaigns and pursue a whole new thing. So that was maybe a little long on that. No, I love it. Yeah. Because then what ended up happening was I was traveling the country. My kids were little. We have four kids. That was kind of too much for, for me and Andrea. Andrea was single often with four kids um, at that point under 10. And so, yeah, I got off the road after about five years of doing full-time on the road, about 10 or more capital campaigns per year um, for, for five and a half, almost six years straight and came home and, and raised the kids, you know, through their teen years, all four of them before I went back on the road with Oxano to do, to do what I started to do about 20 years ago. So in, in the middle there, I came to my home church, uh, here just outside of Detroit called Kensington, which, uh, when we first came was about 3000 people. Now it's about 15,000 that's not because we came. <laughs> that's, because, <laughs> that's because over those years, God really blessed some yeah. men, men and women, extraordinary leaders. And, you know, they got into the multi-site thing and just had a really great way of um, growing a church and planting new churches and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, it's been a, a great relationship to, to be at around near Kensington, raise our kids there. I had a full-time position there when I came off the road um, for, for a while. Um, almost almost ten years, and um, always always doing a little bit of consulting and strategic navigation on the side. But really, I had a lot to do at Kensington. We did two twenty five million dollar target capital campaigns in my tenure. Um, learned a lot. Learned a lot about generosity and giving and leadership and um, multiplication of churches and leadership development. You name it. But all those things. Um, you know, are kind of in the, a little bit in the rear view mirror for me because I jumped into Oxano and now I hold like an adjunct position at Kensington where I get to still hang out with, you know, my best friends and still try to help them wherever I can at Kensington. But they're, they're but you, can, you can walk out of the staff meeting at any moment and go, I'm out. Right. Good luck guys. Well, you make it. I'm on the road. <laughs> no, I love it. No, I, love I know it. that's not it. No, I love the people there and, and I, you know, but, but I think yeah. God puts us into different chapters and yeah. So that's where I'm at right now. So with all that experience in, in generosity and capital campaigns, um, I know you've seen it kind of at the, what we would in the church world kind of term the mega, you know, this, this world of, you know, 3,000 to 15,000 people. Um, but I also know that you've seen it in that church of, you know, 200 to 400. Yeah. Uh, and, and, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the church you led. What is something that you see churches either doing well or struggling with? If, if I'm a pastor listening in either one of those categories, um, give, me, give, me some, give me some perspective from, from the, the mega down, you know, to that two to 400, which is, by the way, you know, where most of our church leaders are, or some perspective, you know, as that leader that you've been there looking the other way. Yeah, no, I love it. I love the question. Um, yeah, because it, very clearly, um, there's so, so many churches that are in that, you know, a couple hundred folks. And that's, that's quite, quite honestly, you know, don't tell my mega church pastors this, but that is absolutely my favorite 
size church. I had the best. Why? Um, you know, maybe it's just personal preference, but you know, when I was leading at Kalamazoo Community Church, which was where we did that first campaign I've ever done, um, there, there's something about a couple hundred people that is like enough critical mass that mm-hmm. you, know, you can have a little bit of staff, you can have some momentum, you can serve the community. Um, but, but once it gets up, you know, even six, seven, 800, which again, I'm not down on that. I'm glad that churches grow, but if we're up to me sort of in a comfort zone, you know, I would definitely say less than 500 because it really does have that family feel and, uh, and yet, you know, enough resources that you can actually make a dent in your community. So, and maybe too, you know, this is always a grass is greener thing, right? If you're the, if you're the large church guy or gal, you're like, oh gosh, this is hard. And I wish we had a small church so we could have the family thing. Yeah. And then if you're a small church, you're like, man, I wish I had all the resources of a large church. And so, yeah. you know, the, the pendulum swings, but I do think the more our culture disintegrates, the more the sense of family and the sense of kind of knowing a couple hundred people in a way with, you know, the value of that will shoot back up again. So. Uh, anyway, that's where I'm at more personally. What is it about generosity of the, you know, in, in the kind of the different spheres of church life that you've seen be, be common, a common thread? Yeah, that's the thing. There, there is, there is a thing about generosity that, um, I'm not sure I ever go to a church and eh, maybe one or two, and I've been to a lot of churches, you know, a couple hundred I'm not sure I ever go to a church where the leadership feels like they're ahead of the game or on top of the curve when it comes to the discipleship of whole life generosity. Like Wait, I, unpack that, unpack yeah. that discipleship of whole life generosity. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, if I go to a church and I start asking pastors or staff or, or other folks, you know, how do we do here at the church when it comes to teaching people about being a generous person in your whole life, your time, your talent, your treasure, you know, how do you, how are you generous in your community and not just at your church? How do you become sort of a Jesus person in that way where you don't think that everything that you've ever earned or gained is for you, but you actually think it is for the commonwealth, right? Um, usually people stare at me like I'm speaking a foreign language because the pastors don't really know how to do this all the time. They weren't trained in seminary to do this there's usually a bit of fear and trepidation because everyone knows out there that, Oh, when the pastor talks about money, someone's going to get mad. And so that we, we've given pastors this sort of, um, we've injected them with the, you better be really careful when you talk about money or you're going to run people off. Well, gosh, I, you know, I don't care whether it's a mega mega and I've worked with some big ones or whether it's a small church, it feels like every pastoral leader at some point in their lives, if not still, are dealing with that injection of fear. Yeah. And so most of the time, I'm just trying to encourage these men and women and say, look, Jesus doesn't give us any right to not tackle this in a manner that helps the people of your congregation with what is probably giving them the most anxiety in their Mm -hmm. lives, which is the topic of money. So one of my mantras is, I think it's malpractice for a pastor to not address the topic of money and possessions in the lives of the hearts of his congregation. congregation. So for me, I feel like my job is not to chide church leaders. It's to come alongside of them and say, I get it, man. Like I, if I would pretend that, you know, I've licked this and all of a sudden I don't operate ever in fear and now I operate in hundred percent faith, that's silly. Right. And it's, and it's not genuine or, or, or humble. Uh, at the same time, 
I have learned some things and picked up some courage along the way that I try to make that the injection into the pastor is give them an injection of courage that says you're in good hands because Jesus really likes this topic. And you're in, and you're awesome. in good company with pastors who can do this well because what they see is discipleship growth. So let's talk to the pastor that's, that's scared and, and, and they might not characterize themselves in that way. They wouldn't use that word. But when you look at it from, from a rational point of view from the outside in, scared to talk about money for fear they might offend. Right. Even if, even, and listen, we all heard, Jesus talked about money more than love. I mean, we've all heard those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's still this fear, like if I talk about it, people will be offended, people will take it personally, or the, well, they'll, they'll yep, they'll just think we're about, we're talking about money and they'll, is that a myth or, or, or is that really going to happen? Or what have you seen there? I mean, help me, help me speak to that pastor. Yeah. What, one of the things that I try to remind pastors of is um, that the fact is people are sh- struggling in this area. And, you know, so when you look out there, you're not going to see a lot of people that are going to turn tail and run if you bring up this topic, particularly if you bring it up in a gracious way, in a self-deprecating way, if it's not a chiding or, you know, like begging. Um, so you can't so, be harsh with it. You can't be pathetic with it. Yeah. I think you just got to, so, so one of my words that I use often is normalize the conversation. You have to normalize the conversation about money what I mean by that is so many churches, because of whatever, tradition or fear or you mm-hmm. name it, have said, oh, we're going to have a money talk every fall. <laughs> or no, well, January. The, yeah. January is going to be about money. Every year we can count on January being about money, right? Right, right. And so there's patterns that churches have. Yeah. And for, for a lot of our mainline denominations, they'll do, you know, fall stewardship campaigns and whatever. Right, I'm, not, right. I'm not knocking that. The only thing I'm saying is what you've basically said is we're going to have a special time to talk about this topic as opposed to saying generosity and how we deal with our stuff is a daily topic. It's not an annual topic. Yeah. The fact that we're not just weaving it into the way that we talk on a normal or regular basis causes people to be able to segregate it in their own minds and say, oh, that's the thing that I should think about in October. You know, that's yeah. the thing that I, my, my pastor wants me to think about in October. And so you're segregating it that way. The other way you're segregating it is when pastors, I'm encouraging pastors to say, look, if you only talk about it either in crisis, as in we're behind budget crisis, or even in just budgetary terms, like we need to give so that we can make the budget yeah. so we can yeah. keep the going, what you're doing is also a bit of a misstep as well, because what you're saying is giving is about meeting church budgets or giving is a financial sort of transactional thing, which again, Jesus doesn't allow us to have the belief or have the practice that money is purely transactional. Like if I give money, then the church can survive. But rather it's this relational thing. It's this spiritual thing. It's this disciplinary thing because here's the sort of logical outgrowth of that. What it means for most pastors is if I handed them $50 million today, they would say, great, I never have to talk about money again. Mm. And I would say, wrong. Mm. 
you're not only talking about money because you need it to run your church. You're talking about it because as my pastor, I need your help in dealing with my life and dealing with where my anxiety comes from. I mean, think about it. Andrea and I, we've got four kids. We're trying to help them with college. We have aging parents, which right now they're in good shape, but maybe there's going to be a time when they're not in good shape. So I need help. I need to know, pastor, how am I supposed to live a generous life when there's about 50 things that could go wrong tomorrow? And, and they prey on my fears and, and, and they're, they're sitting on my shoulder all the time. Pastor, I need you to help me with that. I don't need you to talk about money only when you're trying to make budget. Wow. That's that. I, you know, I'm processing that because I, you know, I do think that that is as much as we talk about disciple making and discipleship being a buzzword right now. And, you know, everybody's, you know, oh, we're not going to do this. And we're not even a missional church anymore. We're disciple making, you know, all those things. I think, I think what I'm hearing you say is, is that the core of discipleship is really helping people understand the true nature of generosity. I think it's a really, really big deal. So I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying, um, I don't know how you could get somebody to really grow in their dependence on God in their life of being a Jesus person on the earth. If you don't make this one of the main areas that you help them navigate as a human being, I I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to not have this be a main topic. And yet it seems like it's the most neglected topic in the church because of all the reasons you and I have already talked about. Yeah. Well, I think it's just this really tricky thing where I don't know whether the evil one likes to really take advantage of that or, you know, I don't know what or who to blame it on. But I think at the same time, breakthrough here can be when pastors normalize the conversation, make it more of a discipleship conversation than a budget conversation, and really try to do it in a way that is, hey, we're all in this together. This is not easy. I'm not pretending like you just go from A to Z in just in generosity. It's like any other category of following Christ. You take baby steps and then you get a little bit more mature. And then as you mature, you're also helping other people with this category and, you know, take every other thing that you think is a discipleship competency or, or, or character development thing and place this square in the middle of it. And, and, and a lot of them come or, or emanate out of that. I love that. Has there been something or someone you've seen when in the communication, has there been a practice or a moment that you've seen somebody just really knock it out of the park? Has there been, can you give, uh, can you give kind of an example of the normalization, the talking about it, even in a general sense, you don't have to have the specific words, but just for, for those who are listening, what does it look like when it's happening? Well, yeah, I, you know, a few things come to mind. One of them is, um, I, I love generosity series, you know, teach, series, I'm all all good with that. But let's set that aside for a second, just to say the normalization of it happens when pastors, preachers, teachers, whatever, weave generosity principles into any other aspect of their discipleship and shepherding of people. For instance, does the topic of generosity apply to the topic of a Christian marriage? You better believe it does. You know, does it apply to the topic of my career and how I'm serving God in the workplace? Of course it does. And so there's all these ways that you can kind of weave in and that's part of my normalization of Mm -hmm. of the topic. Um, I I think pastors need to talk about their own journey with it. I think they need to talk about their own fears with it. I mean, I think 
you know, one of the disservices we do in some of our churches is kind of place pastor on the pedestal to say, well, well, he or she probably has this all figured out. And so I'm just this lowly little congregation member living in my own fears, sitting in my pew thinking no one else, you know, has this money funk that I'm, you know, living in right now. And so I think for pastors to, to break open the conversation with their own fears and missteps is, is great. I, I have to say this too, man. I mean, there's some great teaching that I just suggest pastors look at. Like and, what? Oh, and I'm thinking like Andy Stanley. I mean, he's got some series on giving. Andy, Andy Stanley. I don't yeah. know. Where is he yeah. a pastor? He's a Mormon from Utah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, Andy, I mean, Andy's got some great stuff. And I know he's experienced yeah. some, he experiences, you know, some yeah. around him. But honestly, whatever you think of Andy, what I was tell people is, Google, YouTube, his stuff on generosity and give him credit for it, but just literally re-preach it. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, you know, Robert Morris, you know, there's, there's, I mean, we could name a bunch of, of guys yeah. that are really doing a, a kick butt job with this, but I'd say as a pastor, study, study some of the great teaching yeah. and then figure out how to say it in your voice and then help your congregation with it. No, that's great. And um, I wonder how many pastors, if they really own the moment of, whether they're whether they're online on their on their bank account or whether they're actually still writing checks or whatever, you know that moment of, you know, if I tithe, then I'm you know you know that sweating moment of, okay, so I'm going to do this again even though the math doesn't add up. Yep, yep. You know, rather than presenting the fact that oh yeah, I, I mean I tithe, or maybe even some of them might say, yeah, I skipped a couple. I skipped a couple because I didn't you know. My, what, what do you think would happen if that, if that began to take place? I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan Other than of the pastor getting fired. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, I, you know, every, every person has to understand their context and, and, and what's best and most helpful, most loving for, for their congregation. But at the same time, I'm a big fan of authenticity, right? I mean, um, that, that just goes such a long way for people in their own journey. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think those are the kinds of things that, and I hear this all the time. And so I have to coach accordingly, but I hear, well, I'm not sure what my theology is of the tithe or of giving or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. it's not my job to go in and like fix someone's theology or give them mine. But what I usually say to them is, well, then you better figure it out because without some conviction about generosity and some theology of giving or stewardship or generosity, you know, it's going to be about as wishy-washy in the pews as it is in the heart and mind of the pastor. So I don't tell them what their theology should be, but I tell them that they ought to have one. And what emanates out of that theology is then practice and preaching and things that enable mm-hmm. the congregation to go to a new level of generosity. And so, I mean, I could go on some soapboxes here, but usually when guys are nitpicking about the theology of the tithe, it's not always because they're trying to be ridiculously generous. It's usually <laughs> have some excuse to not give as yeah. much money away. So, so again, I mean, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm also kind of not. Yeah. I mean, if I had a dime for every conversation, someone wanted to do like proof texting Bible verse stuff with me that says that they don't have to tithe. I'm like, well, of course you don't have to, because God loves you and whatever. That's not the point. The point of it is, are there any principles of scripture that we can look to as a launch point to become radically um, generous Jesus people. So why don't we just ask questions like, what would make a difference in my world 
in terms of my own personal generosity. Here's another question I would ask. What if every member of your congregation pastor act like you, acts like you do in the category of generosity? Would it be a great church as a result of that? Or, or would it be a tepid or mediocre? Like, I think all of us should ask ourselves yeah. the, con- the, the self-audit question. If everybody acted like I did in the category of generosity, what kind of a world would this be? And if you don't have a great response to that question, then I think you need to do some more soul searching. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not trying to chide people. I'm just trying to be logical. Like if you're a spiritual leader of any kind and you're not living a life that ought to be mimicked in any category, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to be a superstar, but this is more, it's less about your leadership and more about your own soul. It's more about kind of who you are before God. So that would be my encouragement is don't, don't think about preaching it until you really got a really good handle on what God's doing in your own heart. I think that's what I heard the apostle Paul saying, you know, Hey, you know, emulate me, follow me as I follow Christ. Right. Yep. And, and, and I think that we cannot limit that to just, man, I get up early and I pray and I read my Bible and some of those things. But if, if more of us as leaders said, follow me as I follow Christ when it comes to generosity, because that is, that is equally as powerful in today's world as the right dividing of the word of truth, the right theology, the right understanding. I don't know what the ology word is. There an ology word for generosity? Um, Moneyology. You yeah, know, you just invented the word. Stewardology or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. You know. No, hey, I, I agree, man. And, and again, yeah. we could go down this road a long way, yeah. but I think it has a lot to do with evangelism. I think it has to do with social justice. I mean, mm. I think there's so many categories where how are you going to write the wrongs of injustice yeah. without some level of generosity involved? And I am not saying that money is the answer to everything, but it's the answer to a lot of things. Because when I can invest God's resources in God's kingdom activities, whether it's pushing back against the evil of trafficking or whether it's, you know, investing in some sort of after-school education program for kids who can't read or whatever. I mean, this is, this is why I'm able to encourage a lot of high net worth people who have, you know, God's provided them with a ton of dough. I'm like, don't feel bad about it. Don't feel guilty about it. You know, you have been given a, a power to do the work of God because, um, you know, God doesn't need your money to do his work, but he sure seems to use it and use a lot of folks who can invest in kingdom building activities that, you know, again, press back against all the evils of our world. So um, that's why I think it's a topic that used yeah. to kind of haunt me in a way and remain at the center of my journey, which is man, this is a big deal. And, and yeah. we need to put it in its place. I think we need to put money in its place and then continue to pursue what it means to live life with money in its place. I think, you know, as you've described some of your writing projects, I think you just said the title and I just want to call it out, put money in its place. I think that's your, I think that's, you, you're not yeah. writing. You're, I can see you right now. You're not writing that down. <laughs> no, I got you, man. It's, okay. Is that already the title of it? I'm holding, I'm holding the capital campaign playbook in my hand. And I feel like uh, the passion we have all just heard you talk about generosity with, you've kind of applied here to a specific form of and not, you know, I think sometimes in the church, we think the totality of generosity is when we're running a capital campaign. You've already kind of alluded to that. But you're saying this is a specific season 
that we might be raising money for a specific thing. And that's not all generosity is. Yeah. Yet, you, yet you're given kind of a real, pra- I would say practical. I would say um, very helpful, I think would, would be two words that it, at a very baseline. You know, if I was using, you know, third and fourth grader words yeah. uh, to describe this book. Um, there, I, tell me about why, why the Capital Campaign Playbook? Why was this important for you as a project? Is all these other things God is doing in your life, why was it important for you to write this book and, and what, what inspired it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fun part about the book was I discovered one day in my coaching that probably like a lot of facilitators and teachers, I had so many things in my brain captured in threes. In other words, three things that a media team ought to consider during a gap. Yeah, yeah. Three, three roles that senior pastors need to play or whatever. And I yeah. sat down and I thought, man, I've been doing this for a long time, almost two decades. I wonder how many sets of three are actually just in my brain and heart. And so I sat down at a laptop and banged out 17 of them. And therefore, there are 17 chapters in my book. <laughs> Because I basically thought, wow, I need to just get this all written out. Uh, you know, number one, I'm getting older, so I got to write it down before I forget it. But also, um, what if there was a kind of a how-to guide, a primer, if you will, for churches that are trying to run spiritually, faith-based, discipleship-oriented yeah. capital campaigns? Just let's get it down. Let's get it written out and um, provide it as a tool. And in a lot of way, a lot of ways, it's a like a ship's log of yeah doing for a while. And so I just started out. I'm not sure I started out thinking, Hey, I'm going to publish a book, but I definitely started out thinking I should, I should uh, shut my phone off. Um, I should try to capture this in a way that maybe is helpful to other, other. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's what I see here. It's, it is uh, comprehensive and it is, um, man, it's incredibly readable. And there's help. I mean, it's truly help here. It's not just inspiration. Yeah. This is application. This is literally the word playbook is a, is a great word for it because I think, I think a, a pastor could pick this up. Are, but isn't this your job to, to, <laughs> to not give away these secrets like this? I mean, isn't this putting you out of business to, to put down basically this is how you run a capital campaign? It is. I mean, I, you, you, is it putting me out of business? Maybe. I, I don't think so. I think Many of the consultants that I've met over the years, people that work for other companies than yours and mine, Brian, these are, these are men and women that have given their lives to the church. They're all just yeah. trying to help the church. I mean, are they, yeah. do they get paid to do it? Of course they do. But the point is, our, at, at the heart of our hearts, we're trying to say, hey, what if we could give our lives to making churches better, more effective, et cetera, in the category of discipleship and in expanding their ministry and whatever. So it was meant to be this, like, why would I hold back these sort of tricks of the trade? Why would I hold back the secrets? Who am I serving by holding it back? And I do think that at the end of the day, the complexity of the modern church capital campaign is increasing so much that even though I've given away all of the tactics, you're still going to have church leaders that are going to go, yeah, yeah, I got the, the, the owner's manual for the car, but it doesn't yeah. make me a mechanic. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So, so this is kind of an owner's manual for capital campaigns, but there's still moments when we have to understand that deep work inside the engine needs to happen. And a lot of times in our everyday-to-day roles, we can't see that, but a strategic outsider can. 
someone who's from the outside can come in and say, this is, this is what this looks like. Yeah. And you won't be surprised to hear me say, Brian, based on what you and I do together, that what I find is when I interact with senior leaders of churches, um, I end up telling them, look, the, the actual execution of a capital campaign is not that complex. As a matter of fact, I wrote a book on it. Here it is. You can read it. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but it's not the execution of the capital campaign that kind of bites people. It's the fact that they don't have enough clarity ahead of the capital campaign to know mm-hmm. why they're doing it. Because yeah. ultimately, running a great capital campaign primarily answers the question, why are we doing this project and how is it connected with where God is taking us into the future? So what I find is my, cons- my consultancy is less about, oh, you better make this you know, video to help raise money. Yeah, you don't need my consultancy for that. You can look that up on any YouTube channel or whatever. But my consultancy has to do with being a veteran of the church in the category of how do you make the way clear for people? Mm. How do you see God's future for a church? And how do you connect the dots between someone's involvement, engagement, and funding to see that become a reality? So for me, you know, that's where consultancy still comes in is not in the mechanics of the campaign, but in basically everything leading up to it to make sure that a group of leaders have really discerned God's direction and that we can say that in a way that is accessible to the congregation. And until we have that, until we've done kind of our, our homework in that category, you know, we're not ready to start, you know, making posters for the wall and media pieces and videos to show during worship. What's your, um, what's your heart for this, the ultimate impact of this book? What do you hope that God size hope that this book is able to do in the landscape of, of the body of Christ? Yeah. Love the question. Um, so I'm giving you kind of a off the cuff, uh, heart kind of just snap reaction. I think, man, if, um, if people could be encouraged, like, again, I think courage is such a, a big deal for pastors. There's so many things that discourage. So I think mm-hmm. if they picked up a book and went, Oh wait, we can we can do this. <laughs> you know, yeah. if they read the book and went, okay, this isn't rocket science. We can do this, and if it gave them courage to pursue a dream, whether it be a personal dream or an or organizational ministry dream, I think that would be good. I think if you know, even even maybe we could hear you and I and our team could hear stories of um, people using the material and. As a result of that, seeing a new ministry created or funded or a new building where people can come to know and find Christ and somehow, I mean, maybe that's a lofty goal, but I'm, I'm good with it, man. I'm good with the idea that we'd hear stories of, you know, I started with the book and then I got some advice and we built this building and we've got, a, you know, something really cool happening in our community as a result. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I hit the jackpot there. That's, that's awesome. So. Um, yeah, just encouragement, man. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's where I would feel personally satisfied um, is just to know that someone went from intimidation about this topic to courage. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a great place to just kind of wrap this portion of the podcast, Greg. And, and I appreciate your heart in this. I think your heart's been felt throughout our conversation, but really hearing the, the idea of courage giving pastors the courage to talk about finances, giving pastors the courage to raise money to fund the dream that God has placed in their heart. Um, 
man, that, that just captures what I know and love about you as I get to work alongside you and walk alongside you. I ask three specific questions of every podcast guest and we'll wrap in this way. What's one daily or regular habit you practice that keeps you close to the heart of God? Hmm. Um, for me, I had to learn over the years that um, time where I can be at, <laughs> maybe maybe sound odd, but it's me, time where I can be at a, a piano keyboard. Um, I'm actually sitting in my office where I have one in here because it's part of the way I connect with God. Uh, when I travel, I sneak into the sanctuaries of the empty sanctuaries of churches usually during the week. And um, so as much as I like to read um, and, and learn that way, for me, one of my major connections with God is through the act of worship when I'm, when I'm at the piano keyboard. So that's, that's one of my, one of my ways to connect with God. And so you just fill an empty sanctuary with, with piano. <laughs> yeah. Wrong notes and what, and, and you, you name it, but it's at least a hundred percent passion and me being able to take time away to say, yeah. I'm not worshiping with anybody. Yeah. Um, but I have, you know, you've heard the audience of one. Yeah. I think that's it for you. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's the heart of it. What I love is right there is it, it's man, it, it is a connection that's just you. It's just about you and God. Yep. And, and that's good. Hey, if you go back to your first year of ministry and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? Yeah, I would say, um, don't be so insecure, you know? I mean, I think- <laughs> That sounds easy to accomplish. Just don't be so insecure. <laughs> yeah. How I mean, would you tell yourself, now looking back, how would you say, hey, overcome your insecurity in this yeah. way? I think for me, I had for not just the first year, I would say for a lot of the first, you know, four, five, six, eight, ten years of ministry, so much of a performance based relationship with God and with the church that so much of my identity was, you know, am I the hero of the story? Um, as opposed to I get the you know, I get the privilege of just being myself. Hmm. Um, and Jesus is always the hero of the story. But for me, it was always, if I felt weak or insecure or like I didn't know the answer, I was threatened by that. And so I'd pretend like I did know the answer and I would, you know, put on a, put on a performance version of Greg, not the real Greg. And, hmm. you know, after all these years, what I've learned is that Jesus was okay with the real Greg in all of the foibles and, um, you know, unanswered questions and immaturity as a leader and whatever. And I spent a lot of time trying to cover that up as opposed to just learning from older folks and experiencing the love of Christ, regardless of my performance. Is there one thing you've learned to do to bring that real Greg back out, even as, even today? Yeah. I mean, I, so for, for me, it has to do with, um, super like 100% authentic relationships with a couple of guys, um, yeah. you know, because then there's, you know, no, no, no holding back. I don't need to feel like I need to hide or pretend I can go to those guys and say, here's what I'm at, or here's what I'm struggling with, or I goofed up the other day or, you know, whatever, because then I know these guys will treat me with care and treat me like Christ would treat me. And so I'm reminded of the father's love and I'm reminded that I am imperfect and I was never intended to be anything other than just the imperfect version of who I am. So um, I think that's it. I think honestly too, as my marriage has matured, I mean, Andrea and I, we, we, we talk about a ton of 
even our own ways that we act out. You know, she has a career as a director of an internship program in ministry. I've been in ministry. We've both been in ministry together. And in ministry, there's always these temptations to, you know, go to that part of you that's not the authentic part of you. Um, and so I think even in our marriage friendship, we've been able to kind of call each other out on, hey, you're, it seems like you're living out of your, you know, this, the part of yourself that it, that's the fear-based part or the insecurity-based part. And, you know, let's go to the different, let's go to the other part of you, which is fully centered in Christ and in, in a relationship that's healthy. Um, mm. So that's been, that's been a big deal too, just the marriage friendship. I love that. I say that a lot. I say I love that a lot, but I truly mean it. I mean, I it's, not you, just a, it's not like I a know you're genuine. Yeah. <laughs> is there one book, this last question, is there one book you consistently recommend or give as a gift apart from the Capital Campaign Playbook, <laughs> Capital Campaign Playbook, An Insider's Look at a Church Consultant's Game Plan by Greg Gibbs, forward by Will Mancini, part of the Church Unique and Digital Leader Series. Yeah. Is there another book that you consistently <laughs> give or recommend as a gift? Well, I don't think having a title that long is a really good way to sell books, by the way. So we got to talk to... Uh, I just read everything on the front cover. That's yeah. not the title. Yeah. The title is Capital Campaign Playbook. Yeah. Um, well, well, here's the thing. This is going to sound super nerdy, but I'm going to talk about two books. So I'm, I'm sort of answering... Please don't say question. Star Trek. Please don't say Star Trek. Please don't no, say... No, it's not Star Trek, but okay. I have been reading um, Dr. Phyllis Tickle... Great name, huh? But she is a, a fantastic theologian. Did you we tell your accountability partners that you've been reading that? <laughs> she is an extraordinary church historian and theologian that we just lost. She's with Jesus now after about a year ago, but I think she got up into her 80s. I'm not totally sure. But I'm holding the book that I feel like I talk about more often than anything else. And anyway, I don't want to get into that too much, but it's called The Great Emergence. And it has to do with the history of the church. And that every 500 years, the church kind of recycles and recalibrates into some new version of itself. And she traces Christian history all the way from the time of Christ through the Reformation, through the Great yeah. Schism, et cetera. Anyway, super nerdy, like church historian stuff. But here's why it's so important to me. She basically says that right about now, now she didn't get to experience it because she went on to be with Christ, but right about now, the church is at its time of recalibration in a massive way which inspires me to think that maybe in my lifetime, I could see something amazing happen with the church um, at large, like worldwide, that it was a recalibration like has happened, you know, over those years. Anyway, the one I recommend more often than that though, quite honestly, is Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, um, which I'm sure is not foreign to your listeners. I mean, it's a big, big deal. And uh, the principles in there, I think, especially for ministry people that are listening to this podcast, you know, if you haven't read it, you probably need to read it. You probably need to get into a group and talk about it or something, but you know, super critical stuff. Why is that so important for you, Greg? Oh, I said, because I've been not emotionally or, you know, spiritually healthy. Um, so I think to have those principles kind of spelled out by Scazzaro, yeah. um, you know, is a key thing. So I, I bet, you know, I was just, I've got a really dear friend who is a pastor in South Africa and, um, he experienced some health troubles and a lot of different things, but I just felt led to, you know, have him read that book because that felt like it unpacked for him a lot of the things that led to his stress and a lot of the things that will lead to his freedom as he continues to minister for the rest of his life. And so that seems to be kind of the go-to one for me these days is giving EHS stuff out to people so that they can find emotionally healthy spirituality. 
Greg, thanks for some time uh, on the podcast. I'm excited to see how God's going to use this book and the ones to come to really unleash um, strongholds in many people's lives when it comes to how we view and how we um, use our finances to his glory. So thanks for a little bit of time today. And I appreciate your heart, brother. You bet, buddy. Thank you for being, having the ability to be on on the podcast. It was great. So fun. Thank you for listening to My Ministry Breakthrough from the Oxano Podcast Network. You can head over to MyMinistryBreakthrough.com to join the conversation and access our show notes, including the books or other resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoy hearing these stories of ministry breakthrough, we would be honored if you would subscribe, rate, and even leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.